Welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. We were standing in the center of the occupation. Caught between the ground and the gray, gray sky. Maybe got a little bit of better formation. Maybe take a little moment to wait in line. I don't know, but I've been told. Every little thing has been bought and sold. I don't know, but I've been told. Today's show is an encore presentation of Riding Red, the poetry and politics of riot. We're listening to Talking Hotel Arbot Blues by The Handsome Furs. It's May 5th, 2020, and today we're going to bring our interview with Joshua Clover on poetry and crisis, strikes and riots, back to your attention. This conversation took place at the end of September in 2015 when Clover was completing his verso book, Riot, Strike, Riot, that would be published in May of the following year. What recalled this conversation to us was an April 16 podcast we came across called The Geopolitics of COVID-19 and hosted by the University of California at Davis Humanities Institute. It features Clover in conversation with the great Mike Davis, whose back-to-back books The Monster at Our Door, The Global Threat of Avian Flu, and Planet of Slums, Urban Involution, and the Informal Working Class really ought to be required reading at this point in capitalism's late phase of pandemic generation. We were standing in the center of the occupation Caught between the ground and the gray gray skies Maybe got a little bit of better formation Maybe take a little moment to wait in Near the end of the conversation, Clover addresses the rent strike that happened in April, and this ties in nicely with the focus of this interchange. We'll begin with that slightly edited clip. Here's Joshua Clover. Obviously, I think there shouldn't be landlords at all, and I think that any pushback against landlords is desirable. I think it's a really nice example of the collaboration between people struggling, uh, people with political commitments, and history itself, right? Uh, 30% of the renters in the country uh, did not pay their rent on April 1st. That didn't arise out of massive extensive organizing, it arose out of exigency, and it's gonna set the terms for what's possible. A lot of people just found out that if an entire apartment building says, we're not gonna pay our rent, you don't pay your rent, and the cops don't come around. Now, is that sustainable indefinitely? No, that's gonna take other kinds of uh, more broad-based solidarities and, and mutual uh, aid and mutual support and mutual organizing, but I absolutely hope that it continues. The work of Joshua Clover blends the worlds of poetry and economic crisis. Poet, communist, cultural critic, translator, editor, and professor of literature and critical theory at the University of California, Davis, Clover has published three acclaimed volumes of poetry, including The Totality for Kids and his most recent Red Epic published by Commune Editions in 2015. Clover's book, Riot, Strike, Riot, The New Era of Uprisings, explores the historical development of riots from a tactic for workers' wage demands to post-1968 occupations challenging corporate and government malignance. In our first segment, Clover gives an overview of his work on political theory in Riot, Strike, Riot and tells us why we're in a new age of riot. But we'll begin with a poem from Red Epic to set the tone. This is Hexaity a Latin word which loosely translates as thisness, and which Clover expands to mean a particular sensual immediacy of the given thing. And now, our September 29, 2015 interview, Writing Red, The Poetry and Politics of Riot, 
with Joshua Clover on Interchange on WFHB. If what you want is calm to be restored, you are still the enemy. You have not thought through clearly what that means. If what you want is a national moment of silence, the indictment of a single officer or two or three, you are still the enemy. You have chosen the reverie of law for you and your friends. If you want another review panel, a Justice Department study, a return to democracy rather than for riot and looting to leap beyond itself from county to county, risk to risk until it becomes general. You have not understood what a revolution is. It's just this. It's coming out again night after night, more of us than there are of them. It's saying no to every deal. Remember, nothing belongs to you because nothing belongs to anyone. In World Systems Riot, you write, those for whom a stagnating or declining wage can no longer acquire the market basket, much less the ever vaster surplus population beyond the wage, have realized the truth of the age, that a visit to the paymaster, even armed and in company, no longer affords a remedy. For them, the action will be elsewhere more and more intensely, which is by way of saying the riots are coming. They will be an ascendant feature of hegemony unraveling, regarding which moral scolds, condescending strategists, and bourgeois opinion can have little to say. Your book, Riot Strike Riot, is about that in some sense, yes? Yeah, that's a, a not terrible uh, passage to choose to summarize what the book is trying to think about. My first question was just an effort to think about the return of the riot as a form of collective action. The historian Charles Tilley has this very useful term, which is the repertoire of collective action. He notes that different uh, places, people, countries, social moments choose uh, different forms of collection, collective action uh, as part of their repertoire of struggle in different places and times. And so I started with the question, you know, why the riot? Why now? Uh, it's become uh, an object of fascination for many. It's also statistically on the rise in quite notable ways. And moving from that simple fact, uh, I, I sort of came to a, an account of a longer history where the riot is the leading form of collective action before 1800, uh, coming out of sort of various kinds of risings of the poor and, and, and you know, pre-modern insurrections. Uh, the strife takes over as the leading form from, you know, sometime around 1800, 1830, 1840, and really holds its position until the 1960s or 1970s in the Western world, in the, you know, the early industrializing nation, and then begins to fade fairly dramatically to be again replaced by the riot. So now I have my series, Riot Strike Riot, although the second period of riot, the contemporary period, is notably different. The most evident distinction is that it's often racialized over and over. It begins with that, uh, you know, inaugurating event of the cops killing a black kid or some version of that drama, uh, and that's yeah, in distinction from the riots of the 17th and 18th centuries, which are largely, a, you know, they're largely bread riots, but largely about struggling over the price of subsistence goods. And so now with this history, which I call riot strike riot prime, indicates the difference 
I wanted to map that onto a long history of capitalism and the cycles of capitalism. And I so I ended up not just with a sort of history of struggle, but a short history of capitalism, making arguments that it's dominated by commercial capital, which is to say a kind of circulatory model uh, in the 17th and 18th centuries, then dominated by industrial capital in the 19th and 20th centuries, and then finance capital from the later 20th century to the present, which is also a circulatory model. So then I had a historical shape, circulation, production, circulation, prime, which matches up to riot, strike, riot, prime. And the book is a working through of why these two series, one about how we struggle and one about the structure of capital, uh, actually how they go together and why they have a coherent logic to them. We were standing in the center of the occupation. I'm Doug Storm on Interchange. Today's program is an encore presentation of Writing Red, the Poetry and Politics of Riot, about the political act of riot, the language of the unheard, with poet, cultural critic, and political theorist Joshua Clover author of Riot, Strike, Riot, The New Era of Uprisings, published by Verso. What was interesting, I think, too, is the, the idea that we're in that circulation space. We don't produce at this point in time. Uh, that's right. Of course, there always has to be some production, production and circulation. Circulation is a slightly abstract term, but it includes uh, exchange, so buying and selling in the marketplace, distribution, and then consumption. Uh, and all of those things are in this, this sort of the sphere of circulation. Uh, we still produce, people still make things, uh, but the balance has really shifted. It's, it's far more difficult now for various reasons, a lot of them having to do with sort of technological advance and automation, but that's not the only reason. It's much more difficult now to make profit from uh, from production, from from exploiting surplus labor in production, and so capitalist firms tend to try and make profit by outcompeting each other in circulation, by you know having ever more efficient methods of logistics and shipping and transport, uh, cutting their costs with larger and larger retail operations like Walmart or, or or whatnot. So all these sort of mechanisms in which they can cut costs and thus increase profits in circulation. Uh, have really restructured capitalism. So you have the decline of, you know, the automakers, right, is the famous example, uh, which are massive employers uh, at an incredible scale. And the rise of, like, information technology that organized the vast global logistics networks. And that's a big shift in, in how capitalism is, is structured, actually. And I think it's, it's changed the logic of what it means to struggle against capitalism. Uh, you mentioned earlier, uh, or just mentioned, that riots in the U.S. have uh, lately centered around police murders of black men. You write in the poem Hexaity that, uh, quote, if you want a national moment of silence, the indictment of a single police officer or two or three, you are still the enemy. What do you mean by the enemy there? Ha, 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 ha. I know it will feel to many like an exaggerated language. Uh, and I don't want to disavow it by noting that I uh, borrow it from Diane de Prima, a great poet. Um, and she wrote a series of poems called Revolutionary Letters. And this poem is, is modeled on one of those revolutionary letters that begins, if you want jobs for everyone, you are still the enemy, which is sort of a response to uh, a dream of like, oh, the real political solution is to integrate everyone perfectly into capitalism. And her point was like, no, that's, 
that's not the political goal. The goal is not to integrate everyone into capitalism. The goal is to destroy it. Uh, and uh, I was reflecting on the moment after the killing of Michael Brown, and there, there was you know, two, two, uh, two riots follow, right? One immediately follows for a couple of weeks in, in Ferguson and surrounding areas in Missouri. And then when Darren Wilson, the officer who killed Michael Brown, uh, was not charged, uh, the riots are national and utterly extraordinary in their scope, uh, reminiscent of the, the long hot summer of 1967 and through the national race riots that, that, that happened repeatedly that summer. Uh, and one of the responses was, well, if we could successfully convict Darren Wilson, then we'd know we lived in a just society somehow and we could, we could stop the rioting. And that requires a model of believing that it's just bad apples, right? So we have a fundamentally uh, acceptable, uh, underlyingly just uh, social structure in the United States, which a few bad actors periodically ruin, and if we could just sort of get rid of them, it would work fine. And that's not true, right? That's simply uh, an error. The murder of young black men is the expression of a set of structural inequalities and exclusions, uh, uh, an enduring anti-blackness, which does not exist as like a bad thought in bond. It's absolutely part of the structure which preserves exploitation and miseration and so on. And it can't be resolved by getting rid of bad actors. It can only be resolved by an unmaking of that entire structure. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that poem is an argument with people who think you can preserve the structure and just get rid of it, sort of blemish it. Uh, and I do not think that at all. Yeah. We were standing in the center of the I'm Doug Storm on Interchange. Today's program is an encore presentation of Writing Red, the Poetry and Politics of Riot, about the political act of riot, the language of the unheard, with poet, cultural critic, and political theorist Joshua Clover, author of Riot, Strike, Riot, The New Era of Uprisings, published by Verso. Every little thing has been bought and sold, I don't know, but I've been told. That was Revolutionary Letter Number 19, I think, published in 1971. What's changed in those 45 years? <laughs> I think we're going to use several hours. <laughs> um, well, I would say the main thing that, that's changed is a set of recognitions about what struggle could look like that arose in the 60s and sort of peaked in some ways in 1968, although I think in many ways 1967 is 1968 for black people in the United States. Uh, but... Um, uh, set of suppositions there uh, arose in that moment, you know, so in the late 50s, early 70s, but now get referred to sometimes as a new social movement, uh, where there was seen to be an antagonism between an old model of revolution, which was sort of this socialist model, right, uh, like labor-centered uh, socialist organizing model, and then an identity-based movement. And this is, of course, a drastic simplification, but it's one that's had real power in the world. So you get these no, new social movements around uh, First, the civil rights movement, of course, uh, you know, feminism, early queer struggles, and so on. Uh, and that as sort of models of what revolution uh, or anti-systemic struggle can look like. Now, in some ways, uh, the cynic or the exhaustive person in me wants to say, well, not that much has changed. We're, we're in some ways in that moment again, where there seems to be a kind of antagonism between different models of struggle, some fairly identitarian, some not. But actually, I think in that period, there have been great advances in thinking things like gender, race, and class uh, together collectively. I think that people like, you know, Italian Marxist feminists 
uh, in that period, Silvia Federici, Maria Rosa Dalla Costa, others have done quite amazing uh, things in thinking about gender and, and, and capital together. I think that there's been a lot of incredibly sophisticated thinking about uh, race and class. There's, a, there's an article call, uh, by Chris Chen called The Limit Point of Capitalist Equality. I think that's right. I may have it slightly wrong, uh, which I think is quite insightful about, about this issue. And there's many more. Uh, so that names the thinking of the problem of revolutionary struggle and of, uh, of competition, the so-called competition problem of how you bring together various people of various positions and perspectives into a kind of uh, single or unified struggle. And I do think we've gotten somewhere, although some days uh, it doesn't always feel that way. Mm -hmm. Uh, You mentioned uh, Maria Rosa de la Costa, and I think um, you point out in, again, I think it's that San Francisco Museum of Modern Arts blog, where you make special note of... um, Della Costa's and Selma James' article, The Power of Women and the Subversion of the Community. You call it uh, one of the most powerful revolutionary documents. Uh, you quoted from it as well. And I'll read it uh, now because I also was uh, really sort of moved by it and thinking about it um, and how these these things intertwine in such a way that they're almost, they're just so difficult to sort of take apart in your daily thinking. So they write, the working class family is the more difficult point to break because it is the support of the worker, but as worker, and for that reason, the support of capital. On this family depends the support of the class, the survival of the class, but at the woman's expense against the class itself. The woman is the slave of a wage slave, and her slavery ensures the slavery of her man. Like the trade union, the family protects the worker, but also ensures that he and she will never be anything but workers. And that is why the struggle of the woman, of the working class, against the family is crucial. It's pretty powerful. Oh, I think that, that essay, you know, I, given that I've had the opportunity to spend a lot of my life reading, it, it would be absurd for me to single out two or three things that have been the most important, you know, things have changed me over and over again. But that essay is certainly one of the ones that for me has been the most eye-opening, the most consistently remarkable. I often re- you know, reread it and talk about it with friends or students or, or whatever, and it always uh, strikes me. I don't want to claim it's perfect, and I would note, I think, the obvious thing, which is that uh, the tradition of feminism that it comes out of still, um, in, in many ways, has left the question of race not yet completely thought. And of course, you can always say that, well, good on gender, bad on race, good on class, bad on gender. And I don't want to hold anyone to the project of perfectly thinking all those things together, uh, which would be, you know, truly a miraculous moment. But uh, given what it is, I think it really is one of the great essays, and I hope everyone will, uh, if they haven't already had the chance, give themselves the opportunity to read it. Good. Really available online. Feel it coming in the air yeah. And there's screams from everywhere yeah. I'm addicted to the thrill It's time for a break. This is Run This Town by Jay-Z with Rihanna and Kanye West. Stay with us for more Poetry and Riot with Joshua Clover when Interchange returns on WFHB. Pledge your allegiance, get your boutiques on, all black everything, black 
cards, black cars, all black, everything And our girls are black first, riding with they tillagers I can't more in depth if you boys really real enough This is La Familia, I'll explain later But for now, let me get back to this paper I'm a couple bands down and I'm trying to get back I gave Doug a grip, I lost a flip for five stacks Yeah, I'm talking five comma six, zero shot, zero here, Doug Back to running circles round, now we squared up, hold up Life's a game, but it's not fair I break the rules, so I don't care uh -huh. So I keep doing my own thing Walk and call against the rain Victories within the mouth Welcome back to Interchange on WFHB. I'm Doug Storm. We just heard Run This Town by Jay-Z with Rihanna and Kanye West. Today we're listening to One from the Vault, a 2015 conversation with teacher, poet, cultural critic, and political theorist Joshua Clover. He's the author of books of poetry and political theory. His book, Riot Strike Riot, The New Era of Uprisings, was published in May 2016 by Verso. In this segment, we explore communism and the work of cultural criticism. But first, a poem. This is Transistor from Red Epic, part of a longer work called The Fire Sermon. There will be a revolution, or there will not. If the latter, these poems were nothing but entertainments. If the former, it will succeed or fail. If the latter, these poems were better than nothing. If the former, it will feature riots, fire, and looting, and these will spread, or they will not. If the latter, these poems were curiosities. If the former, it will feature further riots, manifestos, barricades, and slogans, and these will leap into popular songs, or they will not. If the latter, that's that. If the former, these popular songs will be overcome, or they will not. If the latter, these poems were no different than the songs. If the former, the popular itself will be abolished by a riot, barricade, manifestos, occupation, fire, or it will not. If the latter, we'll spend several more decades talking about culture. If the former, the revolution will at this point be destroyed from within or without. The latter, these poems went down fighting. If the former, it will feature awful confrontations with former friends and there will be further manifestos, new slogans ongoing occupations and communes, and lovers will be enemies. We do not know what will happen after this point, but surely this is enough to draw some preliminary conclusions. The poem must be on the side of riots, looting, barricades, occupations, manifesto, communes, slogans, fire, and enemies. You said in an interview with the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art blog, Open Space, I am a communist, not a social democrat. I believe in the end of the value form, which sounds abstract, but it's quite concrete. The severing of any link between how much labor one contributes to society and how much access one has to the social store. That's not the goal of communism. It's the definition. You also said that social democracy is not a possibility. Is the end of the value form a possibility? Oh, I think it's a guarantee, but the two questions are when and what happens next. I think that the arrangement we have uh, of 
in which surplus value is generated and distributed inequally uh, via a system of exploitation, a combination of capitalism and colonial imperialism. It's important to remember that that hasn't existed forever. It, it sort of came into uh, alliance, alignment, and uh, coordination in, oh, who, you know, 16th, 17th century, uh, and has had some bad times and some good times. In fact, the, the real high, high watermark for capitalism is probably from 1800 to 1970, not that long in the history of the world, right? So uh, it, it came from somewhere, it will go back there, uh, and we'll have something else that doesn't uh, work by that particular organization of some people's labor and other people's gains. Now, I could imagine much worse things happening. Um, there's no shortage of dystopias on offer, and we've seen versions of some of them, sort of cybernetic exploitations. Uh, like that movie, The Matrix, is not a, um, a not an entirely implausible forecast of what this, a, a sort of dystopic future will look like, but it could also be something much more liberatory or much more emancipatory, uh, 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 in, with a great degree of equality and less immiseration and exclusion. And certainly I think that's a, what uh, I hope people can struggle toward and force. And Joshua, what does it mean to be a communist in 2015? Uh, it means getting funny looks from the people you work with. <laughs> uh, I mean, of course, it's a good question. It, 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 it has sort of accreted meanings over time. So if it once meant uh, sort of specific horizon of a social organization, now it also means an association with various past and failed uh, historical moments that name themselves as communists. So it's quite strange now to say you're a communist because then you sort of have to go into a often lengthy and annoying explanation of why what you mean when you say communism has nothing to do with what happened in the Soviet Union or what happened in uh, China, or what happened in various places in the 20th century, and to try and tease out what are, for me, very significant distinctions between uh, socialism, advanced social democracy, and um, some version of communism in which, uh, to which I feel committed. So it's, it's labor-intensive to say you're a communist. There's a lot of explaining except for some people it's so strange they just don't say anything about it and pass over it in silence, and then there's no explaining at all. We were standing in the center of the occupation. I'm Doug Storm on Interchange. Today's program is an encore presentation of Writing Red, the Poetry and Politics of Riot, about the political act of riot, the language of the unheard, with poet, cultural critic, and political theorist Joshua Clover, author of Riot, Strike, Riot. The New Era of Uprisings, published by Verso. Every little thing has been bought and sold. I don't know, but I've been told. 
an upcoming uh, uh radio uh, interview I'm going to do on Alan Wald, who's written a trilogy about the literary left. And um, pretty much from roughly from the Spanish Civil War through McCarthyism. And, you know, he just actually illustrates what you were saying, the the vast accretion of different meanings that had uh, attained to that to these particular terms through through those historical periods. Uh, And but part of the thing he tries to understand in there, I think, is is how those political commitments inform or or maybe don't necessarily inform the work of writing depending on the person you know doing the writing writing novels writing poems writing draw you know plays or propaganda itself does being a communist inform your writing absolutely but yeah the inform is a cleverly chosen word you've handled the problem quite a famous problem uh, pretty well with that with that word, uh, you know, the, the main thing I think about this is that theory, let's say, theory is imminent to struggle. One doesn't have a theory of communism and show up uh, on the, on the you know, street corner of a bunch of immiserated people and say, hey, gang, here's my communist theory, and it explains what you should do. Communism arose from the, the ideas of it arose from the lived struggles of humans. Uh, and development in communist theory arise from lived struggles. And I also think, you know, I'm happy to count poetry as a kind of theory. I'm happy to count novels as a kind of theory, at least if they take themselves, you know, sincerely. Um, and so they, too, arise from lived struggles. So uh, it's the, the commitment to places where people are trying for some sort of emancipation, some sort of uh, liberation, some sort of anti-systemic overcoming, you know, one engages with that, one goes to those places, one lives in that situation, one lives with those people, and it changes one's writing profoundly. So yes, there is an informing, but there's never a moment where you sit down and think, I'm a communist, so I must write this. That seems catastrophic to me. So being born in, I think it was 1962, um, do you come late to the idea, or is it because we... Um, because you were born sort of at the tail end of these these things that Alan Wald has dis, you know has been researching and understanding communism as an American as the American version I guess past McCarthyism is coming late to communism a, a different kind of thing. Uh, I might have come early to real communism, uh, by which I mean something very specific. I think that it's the thing that gets called communism a lot in the period that he's looking at, especially, let's say, in uh, you know, the House on American Committee's trials, I actually wouldn't mostly call that communism. For me, that's socialism, and there's a, a distinction. It's organized around the idea of there being uh, sort of usually some version of a vanguard party that... Uh, uh, works within a larger sort of class-mass party sequence, as they say, towards seizing state power and controlling production, worker ownership of of production. Uh, And this is the main mode of what was often called communism, but I don't call, uh, currently called communism, in the period from maybe uh, 1880 to, uh, toward, you know, 1950s or 1960s, when that sequence stops being possible for various reasons. So that idea of like having a, 
a transitional program that was carried forward by a leading group and spread amongst the masses. Uh, I never identified with that. That's not a, a political model that I uh, find appealing, but also one that I don't think is practically possible in the world that we live in. Mm-hmm. So, well, go ahead, sorry. For me, it's, it's after that moment that what I call communism becomes the political horizon. Hmm. I like that term, political horizon. So um, define that a bit. So you're you're saying there is that's that's a viable horizon that that is a possibility for us. Uh, I, I don't. I'm I'm not sure what you mean by uh, viable. I I think that um, or I, I think that the horizon of socialist struggle of seizing power over the state um, through, a, through a parliamentary route and of seizing production but preserving production mm-hmm. uh, along essentially capitalist lines but managed by workers, that I think is not a viable horizon. So it's, in, it's at that point when that ceases being possible that the thing I'm calling communism, which is the entire breaking with uh, a mode of production and the separation of the work we do and our uh, ability to, to subsist, uh, the separation of those two uh, phenomena, that becomes possible once that previous model of, of the socialist program uh, is foreclosed. We were standing in the center of the occupation. I'm Doug Storm on Interchange. Today's program is an encore presentation of Writing Red, the Poetry and Politics of Riot, about the political act of riot, the language of the unheard, with poet, cultural critic, and political theorist Joshua Clover, author of Riot, Strike, Riot, The New Era of Uprisings, published by Verso. In Transistor, you say something to the effect of um, speaking about culture. You're, you're you're a cultural speaker yourself, right? You're a highly praised poet, well-published cultural critic. You write columns in The Nation, Village Voice, The Guardian. You had columns in Spin and so on. So you create a kind of cultural capital, and you're on the front lines, in a sense, of the culture biz, I suppose, educated within it, successful because of that membership. Um, is there a way that your commitment to that um, that horizon affects that kind of popular work? I think uh, a version of a, a trap we all find ourselves in, which is to say uh, a sense that, like, well, of course you can't practice a non-capitalist life within capitalism. I think that's a bit of a, a fan- fantasy, right? So, mm-hmm. so there's always this sort of structure. This like one of the political structures of the world is this. Like water supplies are privatized, Everything costs money. You work all day in the sun. At the end of the day, you're really thirsty. You stop into the bodega. You buy a Coca-Cola. It's delicious. And then three three years later, you say, I'm a communist. And someone says, you say you're a communist, but I saw you drinking that Coca-Cola. <laughs> right. And, it's, and there's actually no uh, dream uh, or possibility of having some some purity in, in one's life, uh, independent of the structures uh, that have been developed, right, by, by capitalism within the, the social whole. Um, and I don't think we should aspire to that. Mm-hmm. At the same time, uh, I do find the limits that are created both uh, set up necessities for how we figure out ways to stay alive and are disgusting and disappointing and limiting. So, you know, I was a music critic for a long time, and I had a moment where I felt like, I 
wasn't satisfied with that, and I was just selling products to uh, teenagers, and that's not what I wanted to do with my life, so I quit. But to be honest, you know, I'm a teacher now, and I don't think that's magically pure either. It's still a kind of participation. There is culture in the world. I find it interesting, but I don't want to imagine that because I find it interesting, I take part in it, uh, I produce it, I think about it. I don't want to make the mistake of coming to believe that it's a solution. Right? That's a version of looking for your car keys under the street light, of thinking like, oh, the thing I know about and the thing I do and the thing I'm trained in, that must be the magic secret to revolution. And I don't want to make that mistake. Mm-hmm. You mentioned uh, the spin, uh, or I guess you you mentioned being a music critic, and and that was for Spin magazine. And um, actually, where I, I I came across it was in the um, posting of your your breakup with Spin uh, via tweet, which I thought was uh, it was oddly compelling, um, but it was as compelling because it happened in the um, in the moment of September 11 as well. That 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 breakup. Yeah, so when I did end up quitting Spin magazine, this is quite some time ago, I guess 14 years ago now, uh, there was a funny set of circumstances which turns out to be one of the stories of one's life where I was uh, living in Europe, but I flew back to New York, uh, uh, let Spin know that I was quitting this actually quite generous, sweet gig I had with them, which I no longer felt comfortable about, and this, it just happened that my trip to New York coincided with the uh, um, the, with September 11th and the, the fall of the Twin Towers uh, and the, you know, the micro-drama of me quitting my job, uh, you know, it became a, a quite minor feature of this spectacular global event. And I, I still look back on that as a very strange thing that happened. Yeah. Your latest book of poetry is Red Epic, and you have a forthcoming book called Riot, Strike, Riot. Uh, these exist in a thematic relationship of sorts, I guess. Um, would uh, we consider Red Epic somewhat illustrative of your theoretical work on uh, capitalism or on uh, riots? Uh, I definitely think they're entwined. Uh, there's, I think there are people with greatly capacious minds who can think about four or five or a thousand things at once. I tend to get a couple fixations and work through them for a while. So for me, for the last several years, the topics have been uh, global economic crisis as a sort of systemic fact, but also how it gets lived at the local level, daily life, from just walking down the street to uh, finding yourself in a riot. So I have a certain number of uh, thoughts and experiences and objects that I think about sort of obsessively, and the thinking takes somewhat different shapes and has somewhat different character in poetic work and theoretical work, but um, they certainly share quite a bit of my obsessions. It's time for another break. This is White Riot by The Clash. Stay with us for more with poet and political theorist Joshua Clover on the political act of riot, what Martin Luther King Jr. called the language of the unheard.
back to Interchange on WFHB. That was The Clash with White Riot. Today's program is an encore presentation of our September 2015 conversation with Joshua Clover, author of three books of poetry, two books of cultural critique, including 1989, Bob Dylan Didn't Have This to Sing About, and the 2016 book of political theory, Riot Strike Riot, The New Era of Uprisings, published by Verso. In this final segment, Charlton Heston and Ice-T make an appearance to address the two poles of police brutality against black people in the United States of America. But first, we'll hear one last poem from Red Epic. This is Stop It With Your Strategies. Stop It With Your Strategies, the longest social experiment in history has been abandoned. Nobody liked it anyway. The cigarettes were awful. Now we live in cities where daily life is so sensual one retreats into abstraction. Dirty canals, cars on fire, autumn. Under the glass and iron of the train station bar, the train station pigeons fly into your hair. You listen to a song no one will remember in 30 months. No one but this poem. This decay of the little event that happens at the point of purchase. People are departing or arriving. It's impossible to tell by looking like the duck rabbit that so amused the 20th century philosophers. The mind as we know it was developed in winter gardens, panoramas, factories, wax museums, casinos, train stations. Oh, architecture, you are the greatest art. Your content is modernity. I am an incarnation of time. I do not own my own weapons. When I go to the movies to cure my boredom, I do not wish to see boredom represented. Take that, French filmmakers. Taking everything else. The pop years is over. Here comes China. You've said something that I, I think is a little, I guess it's incendiary of a sort, right? Uh, and I'm not sure if it's a theoretical position or not, but you were asked uh, in another interview, what's wrong with society today? And you said, people think cops need to be reformed. They need to be killed. Um, and that's obviously a very strong statement to make. Well, sure, but all stand by ice to you had that song cop killer back in the uh, early 90s, the thing he was trying to express uh, was uh, the endless murder of uh, people of color by the police, a fact that seems more evident today than it, it was then, and that was his way to try and absolutely clarify the situation uh, that was going on and, and, and not... Uh, diminish it into some sort of polite call for reform. Uh, and I, I appreciate that. Of course, he was made to suffer greatly uh, in the music industry uh, uh, for having said that. There were Senate hearings. Uh, uh, Charlton Heston famously read the lyrics out loud at a national public event, uh, and he ended up as a television actor, which is maybe the worst fate imaginable. Uh <laughs> Um, uh, at least you get to be wealthy, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I wanted to, I, I, I wanted to hold on to the the clarity of that. Let me tell you a story. 
few years back, I heard about a rapper named Ice-T, whose cop killer's CD was about murdering police officers. Let me uh, give you a sample of some of the uh, lyrics that had some of the older ladies among the stockholders white with dismay, language they had never heard before. I got my 12-gauge sawed off. I got my headlights turned off. I'm about to bust some shots off. I'm about to dust some cops off. Then I delivered another, another volley of really sick lyrics, brimming with racist filth, where Ice-T fantasizes about sodomizing two 12-year-old nieces of Al and Tipper Gore. I've never heard the vice president refer to this. She pushed her butt against my... No. I won't do to you here what I did to them there. I think it would be tremendous to live in a world where we could imagine a political struggle and a committal, a political overcoming, which was entirely peaceful, pacifistic, could be done simply by the expression of the desire of the people. I, I think we have to be honest and admit that that is not the world in which we live, the world in which we will live, and to confront uh, the intensities of what it will mean to have any kind of overcoming. Mm -hmm. The logic of uh, being rid of that kind of authority and a violent authority, it does kind of um, extend out, uh, as, as I think you've noted in many other places, that uh, things like drone war are just extensions of that. Yeah, I think that's, that's exactly right. You know, to turn it back from a sort of emotional... Uh, call and demand about the, you know, the, the immiseration of the people crying out and and, uh, and finding itself in, the, in this violent demand. I would also want to turn it back to a, uh, a conjoined framework of understanding the structure of the world. We have in the world, at the global level, increasingly uh, a portion of the population that can't be integrated meaningfully into... Uh, the imperialist and capitalist project can't be made productive, can't be made to generate wealth for others. It's simply not possible. Uh, and as a result, the various modes of population management have intensified. Mm -hmm. So if, if there was a time when uh, the piece of the immiserator and the exclusion could be purchased uh, via the social wage things like unemployment, benefits, and so on. Uh, and so there were, there were carrots to sort of manage the uh, population that couldn't be integrated easily into capital. Now there's only sticks. There's a growing uh, population not integrated into capital uh, with no real reason to play along. There's no carrot for them, and so increasingly you get sticks. You get intensification of policing. You get you get intensification of surveillance, you get drone war, you get any number of uh, strategies for managing this uh, 
fantastically dangerous excluded population. And uh, the police, you know, in uh, Baltimore are just one expression of that phenomenon that's happening in differentiated ways at a global level. Mm-hmm. These things have risen together, um, uh, if, I guess, if we think about it in, in, in those terms of from uh, the loss of that uh, general productive capacity to to create this surveillance and um, um, violent police state at the same time. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's yeah. exactly right. It's, a, it's, right. it's a shared movement. We were standing in the center of the occupation. I'm Doug Storm on Interchange. Today's program is an encore presentation of Writing Red, the Poetry and Politics of Riot, about the political act of riot, the language of the unheard, with poet, cultural critic, and political theorist Joshua Clover, author of Riot Strike Riot, The New Era of Uprisings, published by Verso. So one thing I heard you say in a lecture that uh, someone asked you about uh, trying to get people involved or understand the, the, the difficulties of people who are uh, immiserated by the capital uh, project and um, trying to turn people's attention from the middle class or lower, lower middle class even to try to fight against it for the sake of, of the, the general good also. And, and, and you said... It turns out that the line of people excluded is rising and rising. There's more people now who do not have direct access to the wage on the face of the planet than there has ever been in the history of the world. Um, and in some sense, you're, you're basically saying the, we don't need to worry about people getting involved in this fight. The tide's going to rise and a rising wave of poverty will capsize all boats um, that these are inevitable situations. On the one hand, I'm leery of the language of inevitability, not an absolute fatalist, either in the positive or the negative sense. But I certainly don't think that, uh, you know, the 8 million uh, surplus population living in a ring around Mexico City or similar numbers in Dar es Salaam or uh, Mumbai, uh, I don't think they need me or anyone like me to show up and say, oh, here's why you, you know, mm-hmm. here's what you need to do, here's why you need to, to struggle. I think that, in fact, it, what's useful is to recognize struggles when we see them. One of the things I'm trying to think through in the, the book I've just finished about riots is the ways in which riots are often actually not counted as political struggles. They're written off as sort of naturalistic, spontaneous, unreflective, spasms of dissatisfaction, but without a politics to them. Uh, And if we do that, if we exclude the riot from the political, it's much easier to say, like, to bemoan the inactivity of people and their failure to rise up and struggle. But I think that's that's a mistake, to to be straightforward about it. I think it's obvious that the riot, no matter what it claims to be about, no matter what someone says its topic is, no matter how long it lasts, no matter what the, um, you know, instantiating incident is, uh, it's clearly a form of political struggle because it's inexorably tied to a political economic situation, which is its condition of possibility. So as soon as you recognize things like that as struggles, we see, like, they are happening. Uh, they are happening. They are arising. 
I believe they are intensifying. I do not want to be so bold as to say I know the fate of the riot, I know the fate of political struggle, but I think it's important for me to be attentive to what kinds of antagonism with capital are already happening near and far from me, rather than wringing my hands about the failure of something that looks like, you know, the Soviet Revolution of 1905 or 1970 to materialize, because mm-hmm. it's never going to happen again. You do make uh, you make a distinction between something like protest and something like riot, that protest is is um, a more of a politics of appearance. Sure. I don't, I don't think I'm uh, the first to make that point. Mm-hmm. But, you know, for me, what's worth noting is that protest or civil disobedience it's had moments in its history where it seems to be relatively effective. It's won concessions, it's won gains. Uh, the, a certain portion of the civil rights movement is, is always put forward as a useful uh, example of this, but certainly not the only one. Uh, but in the recent past, it has seemed evident that protests can't win any gains. The example here that's always given is the, you know, the global and massive protest against the war in 2003, which actually of a larger scale than any protest in the history of, of uh, humanity, and um, had no effect whatsoever. Not, not. And I think there's a reason for this, right? The, the demands that the civil rights movement was making uh, were at a time, in fact, when we had rising integration into capital, we had a taut labor market, we had... Uh, capital running at, at its greatest surplus it ever had, the long boom from 1947 to 1973 roughly, is certainly the most effective moment of producing profit uh, ever known. And so it was in fact in some ways convenient for power, let's say, to make certain concessions. They had the money to make concessions and to buy the social peace, and so protest could be somewhat effective in those periods. It could make a lot of noise. It could seem to threaten more direct action. And, you know, LBJ or whoever could say, like, okay, fine, here's a program, here's X number of million dollars. Let's put this behind us. And that was fairly effective. The money's just not there now. Capital does not have the surpluses to buy off protest movements. And so protest movements are not going to get concessions just by protesting. They would have to move beyond that uh, toward much more uh, powerful and persuasive uh, threats uh, to win any gains. So uh, you also have said that capitalism makes human flourishing impossible. The idea that uh, the system itself uh, creates that immiseration um, and perhaps even confuses our sense of what flourishing is. Uh, that's, a, that's a lovely way to put it. You know, I think that to define flourishing, we need some, some life philosopher. I guess what I mean by it is the sense that um, I, the only thing I want to feel bound by is my obligations to care for my friends. And I feel like that obligation is often defeated by the compulsions of capital, which require me to go to work, Form in certain ways, to um, follow certain protocols, to do certain things as many hours of my day, to not destroy various kinds of relationships that probably do want to be destroyed, and thus making it impossible to preserve some that do want to be preserved. So that would be just, uh, 
one example, but I'm not sure my model of flourishing is uh, the same as everybody else's. I do think, maybe if I can have this be uh, a final thought, you know, I've had the fortune to have time to write poetry and the luck to publish it. And by some measures, I am a poet. Uh, And I think that's a very funny situation, right? The idea that some people get to be poets and some people, you know, that it's a social role, but it's a limited social role. And some people get to be poets and some people uh, don't get to be poets. I would much rather everyone got to write poetry uh, if they wanted to, and that nobody was a poet, that there were none of these sort of social roles that could be defined, that could be monetarily structured, that some people could be and some people couldn't be. And so when I say it, it makes human flourishing impossible, I mean it forces these boundaries of roles and not these very narrow senses of simply what it means to be a person in the world. It's reduced to the set of, um, you know, roles, requirements, performances, and that seems terrible to me. Well, Joshua Clover, thanks very much for speaking with us today. Uh, Thank you very much for having me. I do appreciate it. That's our show. We'll close with Paper Planes by MIA. Again, this was an encore presentation with just a hint of the present moment at the top of Writing Red, the poetry and politics of Riot with Joshua Clover, which first aired on September 29, 2015. Thanks to Joshua Clover, poet, communist, cultural critic, translator, editor, and professor of literature and critical theory at the University of California, Davis. I'm Doug Storm. I produce Interchange. Bella Bravo assisted on this program. Cade Young is executive producer. This is WFHB, Bloomington's community radio station. Thanks for listening.